0: You know, it's, it's amazing to me how important truth is versus distinguishing those who tell a lie. I remember I used to play high school basketball and I had a teammate who had the uh, uncanny ability to exaggerate and to embellish and even lie. He got to the point where we just didn't know what came out of his mouth, if what he said was gonna be right or wrong. Maybe you as a parent they have a child, in which sometimes when they speak, you're just like, I'm not so sure what you're saying is true. You you hear what they say, but you're, you're saying, you know what, that doesn't sound like accurate truth there. It doesn't sound like you're you're speaking what is right. You see, we have to discern what is right from what is wrong. Truth from a lie. Well, the disciples were put in that exact situation. Christ had been crucified. Their plans of moving forward and everything triumphing, triumphing before them was all dashed. They're hiding in behind a locked door. Jesus was buried, and word on the street through Mary Magdalene is that He's alive. We see at the end of Mark chapter sixteen where Mary Magdalene makes a beeline to the disciples to tell them Jesus is alive. He has defeated death. But are the disciples going to believe this gospel message? What about you? Are you going to believe the gospel message? This morning, I want to entreat all of us as a faith family to trust the word of Christ. I want us to see all of this in Mark chapter 16. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 16. As a faith family, we have been walking through Mark's rich gospel and we're in the home stretch of our study. We have seen over the past several weeks the heart of the gospel, the very bedrock of our salvation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, in his fast-paced book, we're discovering the unfolding plan of God to send his son as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, that his blood was shed for our forgiveness. That this Jesus is the one who not only died, but was buried and rose again on the third day. He is the one who is victorious over death, that he is the one who has made a way for all people who, tr- who turn from their sin and trust in him by faith to be saved from sin and death. Indeed, as followers of Christ, our hope and joy are full, regardless of circumstance, because of what Jesus has done for us. And now we get to the end of Mark's gospel accounts. And faith family, we're going to slow down. In your Bible, you will notice brackets that begin with verse 9 and end with verse 20. What I want to do today is to increase your confidence In the scriptures, you know, one of the reasons I love preaching through books of the Bible is because when we go verse by by verse, it forces us to stare at a text of scripture we wouldn't normally come to. That is, it's going to lead us to really dive in to say, what is this text in front of us saying? We can't pick and choose which passages to preach. Expository studies through books of the Bible dictates to us the passage to be preached, and though we're going to we take breaks from sermon series to study other passages, the overall diet as a faith family are books that God has ordered for us to explore and to study and to obey. Well, last week we saw Mary, Mary and Salome who encountered an angel at the empty tomb of Jesus, who told them, "Jesus is not here. He has risen." They then sprint out of the empty tomb, amazed and afraid. But then you notice at the end of verse 8, your Bible probably says in the footnotes or in the actual text, this phrase, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20, or it may say some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with verse 8. Okay, what is this addendum? Why does Mark's gospel have this extra ending that is bracketed off from the rest of the book? And Kenneth, are you really going to preach the brackets? Well, yes. This message, y'all, today is going to be very different than most sermons you've heard me preach. This is going to have a different feel, it's a different approach, but I think it's necessary for the maturity, growth, and health of us as a faith family. It's kind of like as a parent, when you feed your child vegetables, they're never excited about it, but you do it because you know it's healthy and it'll help them grow. A lot of what the feel of what we're going to be tackling this morning, it might taste like vegetables, but this is for your maturity. It's for your health. It's for your growth. I want you to have confidence when you hold the word of God that you can know what you're studying. I want you to have confidence that what God has revealed in his word is indeed what he has made clear that you can have confidence that God has revealed himself with clarity and authority, and you can understand what he has laid out for you in his word. So it's going to have a different feel this morning. So stay with me, okay? you may be thinking, oh my goodness, why are we talking about this? Stay with me. I promise we're going somewhere, okay? So this morning, I want us to begin by painting the, the big picture of Scripture Where they're gonna explain the context of what's happening in verses 9 through 20, and then we're gonna apply verses 9 through 11 to us today. Let's begin with the big picture of Scripture. This is a 30,000-foot view of the Bible, and then we're going to zoom in from there like an inverted pyramid. We're going to start at the top, very broad view of Scripture, and begin narrowing our focus and scope as we get closer to the text. The big picture is this. The Bible is a library of 66 books, Written by more than 40 authors across 1,500 years on three continents with one theme, redemption in Jesus Christ. Grab hold of the significance of that statement right there. From Genesis to Revelation. From Moses to David to John, the Bible's writings span more than 15 centuries from Africa to Asia to Europe. The scripture has a diverse set of human authors from various backgrounds. The holy scriptures have been written by kings and shepherds, prophets and tax collectors, physicians and fishermen. And yet, simultaneously, with such a vast array of diversity, there is unity within its message. Redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is driving us to Jesus. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I can't wait to get to this passage in which we're going to see where all of Scripture is driving us to Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it is pointing us to Jesus, Every week when we gather as a faith family, whether we're starting in Genesis or we're going through an Old Testament prophet, we're gonna point to Jesus. He is the point of the text. He is the one that the scriptures are pointing us to. So Kenneth, can we trust the Bible? Yes, absolutely, you can trust this word. I put this in your notes. The Bible is historically accurate, archeologically proven, And prophetically perfect. We'll tackle these one at a time. First, it's historically accurate. There are no facts that are presented in the Old and the New Testaments that have ever been proven false. Now, if man had written the Bible, if man alone was responsible for the writing of the scriptures, certainly there would be historical mistakes. And yet there are none. And if the Bible is historically inaccurate, if the Bible has historical mistakes, then we can't trust its contents. But it is historically accurate in all that it contains. I want you to also see the Bible is also archaeologically proven. Archaeologists have been digging throughout the Mesopotamia, Israel, Palestine area for thousands of years. There have been more than 25,000 archaeological digs that have proven the Bible true. Guess how many archaeological digs have disproven the Bible? Zero. There has yet to have been an archaeological find that has contradicted Scripture. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what happens. Is The more they dig, the more they find, the more they discover the reality that the Bible is true. But thirdly, it's prophetically true. Perfect. Now, prophecy in Scripture is a time in which the text will point forward to an event or to a person in the future. We talked about this briefly a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the cross, where in Psalm 22, King David says that the future Messiah would be pierced in his hands and in his feet. Well, that was written more than 600 years before crucifixion was ever invented. Whenever the Bible points forward to an event or to a person, it is fulfilled with perfection. Who can predict the future with 100% accuracy? Only God can. You see, the Bible is completely reliable, accurate, and trustworthy in all that it contains. You can trust that book in your lap. You can bank your soul on all that has been revealed in that book. You can have confidence that God has spoken with clarity, authority, and with accuracy. And God has faithfully preserved his word throughout the ages. Now you might think that with such a vast space in time, geography, authorship, surely there are mistakes or contradictions, right? Wrong. The Bible is the inspired inerrant and infallible word of God. Now those words are important, y'all. Those words are the scaffolding upon which we build doctrines of the faith that we hold fast and believe. So what do they mean? I've put this in your notes. Inspired. That word means it was written by God through people. When we say the Bible is inspired, it means God inspired the text. That God is the author of the scriptures. We get this from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. In which Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God. And profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word inspired there in verse 16, it means God breathed just as a uh, a flautist would take their flute and breathe into their instrument and create beautiful music. So God has breathed into the scriptures. This book in your lap is a living book. It is alive. It is breathing. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that it's um, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is in no ordinary book. This is not some random textbook. This is the revelation of God in which he goes on record to reveal who he is, what he is like, and what he calls all mankind to respond to him. This is God's love letter from his heart to you, inviting you into a personal relationship with himself through his son. You can trust this word. It's been inspired by God, which means when we study the text, we have to understand dual authorship. Okay, dual authorship, what does that mean? It means that there are two authors. God is the author and there are human authors, the people whom God uses to write the text. God uses human beings to record his word. We see Peter address this in 2 Peter 1. He says, above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That indeed God breathed out his word through these human authors to record what he wanted them to say. You see, the Bible is inspired by God and written by human agents. But I want you to see, secondly, that the Bible is not only inspired, the Bible is inerrant. It is inerrant. It means the Bible has no errors. These human authors wrote exactly what God wanted them to say without any mixture of error or mistake. I thought Dan DeWitt said it really well when he said God used these men with all of their personalities, their writing styles, Their accumulated vocabularies, their life experiences, their illustrations and metaphors to express his message as he wanted it, yet without error. These human authors were not robots. They were not under some trance and just mindlessly writing something down. No, God revealed his will through their writing into making what we have as the scripture. That the word of God is perfect in all that it contains. Indeed, Psalm 19, verse seven says, uh, the word of, um, let's hear it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Hebrews six eighteen says, it is impossible for God to lie. So therefore, if it's impossible for God to lie, everything he says is true. And so his word is perfect. It has no mixture of error in all that it contains. So it's inspired, it's inerrant, but also thirdly, it's infallible. It's infallible. When the Bible says it's infallible, we, what we mean is God's word is totally true and trustworthy. Since God alone is perfect in his nature, in his character, in his essence as God, his word is a reflection of his character. The Bible is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. Don't miss this reality God's word is a reflection of God's character. You see, to question or undermine or assault the word of God is indeed an attack on God himself. Do you remember the first question that the serpent asked Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3? He approached Eve and said, Did God really say? Did God really say, You may not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say? Isn't that interesting? The enemy's first attack against the Lord is against his word. He's seeking to attack the, question, the, 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 the character of God. If he can call into question the character of God and create doubt in the mind of Eve, if we can't trust his word, then we can't trust him. You see, how you view God and how you view his word is intertwined. It cannot be separated. How you view God's word reflects your view of God. If God's word is not trustworthy in your mind, then God himself is not trustworthy. They go together. This is why God's word is a reflection of his character. Psalm 138, verse two, David writes, you have exalted your name and your word above everything else. And then God God's view, he holds up his word on the same level as his own name, which means God's word is completely reliable because God is reliable. All of God's word is true because God is true. And if we call into question his word, we're calling into question his character. And this is why we as God's people, we can trust what God has revealed. Simon Peter said it like this in 2 Peter 1, we also have the prophetic word as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. You see, the more you examine the word, the more the word examines you. The more you study the scriptures, the more the the scriptures study your heart. You see, the Bible is like a mirror. It reflects what's going on right here. Not only is the Bible a sledgehammer, it's also a healing balm. Not only is the Bible a sword, but it is God's personal revelation of himself to you. And you can trust, you can bank all of your life, all of your soul upon what he has revealed in his word. Y'all with me so far? All right, so throughout history, hardworking and faithful copyists bore the responsibility of copying the scriptures with reliability and accuracy onto what are called manuscripts. These manuscripts are copies of what the original authors wrote. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek and Aramaic. Now today, we do not have copies of the original documents written by the apostles. I think the Lord did that on purpose. Because if we still had those copies, I think we would worship those copies instead of the God who inspired it. So we don't have access to that. However, what we do have are the manuscripts, the copies of the original autographs from the apostles. So the question is this, how do we know the manuscripts are trustworthy? It's a good question. I put in your notes three answers. Now, let me just press pause here. There are some really smart people who do this for a living. They study all of this, and they are phenomenal at what they do. And there are tremendous resources out there I could point you to. But these are three reasons that I found captivating and true that you can put your hands around for the sake of our time this morning. The first is this. The reason we can know the manuscripts are trustworthy is because of the short time frame from original authorship. The time frame in between the original writings of the apostles to the surviving manuscripts is really, really short. For example, the original writers of the New Testament, they wrote within 40 years of Jesus' life. In which there were people who were still alive who could confirm and verify the accuracy of what was being written. For example, I was reading this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul points to the reality of the resurrection. And one of the proofs that he gives that Jesus defeated death is that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And then Paul goes on to say in chapter 15, verse 6, and some of them are still alive. Saying, you can go verify this. Go ask them. There are people who saw Jesus alive and he appeared to more than 500 people all at one time. And so we can have confidence that what has been written is completely valuable and trustworthy. But the manuscripts were then copied within 100 years of original authorship. Now for comparison, here's, here's where we're at. For comparison, the earliest copy dates of Julius Caesar's work is 950 years after he wrote it. That's the, that's the closest they've got there. The Bible has a shorter time frame of original writing and surviving manuscripts than any other work, and it's not even close. The second thing I want you to see is the large volume of manuscripts. Here's what's amazing. The sheer number of manuscripts, the copies of the original autographs, is overwhelming, overwhelming. There are more than 5,500 manuscript copies of the New Testament that are in existence today. Now, in comparison, Homer's Iliad only has 643, and the oldest copy date is 500 years after it was written. You see, the Bible has more manuscript evidence than the top 10 most popular literature classics combined. The third thing is the accuracy of the manuscript comparisons. Scholars have studied the 15,000 lines in Homer's Iliad. And of those manuscripts, they found about 5% of it is uncertain of its accuracy. They then took the same critical analysis that they used for that, and they applied it to the more than 20,000 lines of the New Testament. And what they found is one half of 1% contained variants. Now these, these variants were words that were either misspelled in their copies or there was a slight change in style. But most importantly, none of the variants changed the message or the meaning of the original text. So today, historians, theologians and scholars, they have access to an overwhelming amount of manuscripts that prove the reliability of the New Testament. OK, Kenneth, but what about the Old Testament? Are those manuscripts accurate? And the answer is, yes, absolutely. Back in the 1940s, in the Dead Sea area, there was a shepherd boy who had lost one of his sheep. And he's surveying the land, looking for that one lost sheep, and he sees a cave. Instead of trying to climb up and to go into the cave, he throws a rock into the cave, hoping to scare the sheep out. Well, when the rock lands, he hears something different. Because the rock hit a clay pot and broke it. He climbs up into the cave and he discovers these large clay jars that inside contain more than 800 manuscripts of what is now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are copies, manuscripts of the Old Testament, It's considered one of the greatest finds in archaeological history. They've taken these manuscripts and they've put them right next to the Old Testament that you have in your lap and they're identical. These manuscripts that are coming from hundreds and hundreds of years ago are completely trustworthy. The rocks are crying out that the word of God is true. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Jesus declared that God's word will endure. Though kings and regimes have sought to destroy the Bible, God always has, always will, providentially and faithfully preserve and protect his word. So with all of this meticulous attention to detail and the validity of the accuracy of Scripture, what do we make of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20? Well, this is the second part I want us to look at. It's the context of Mark 16. Some of the earliest manuscripts that copied Mark's gospel do not have verses 9 through 20. Now, the way that some of the manuscripts conclude Mark's gospel, it's an abrupt end in verse 8. It stops right there. The women disciples, they're stunned in light of the empty tomb and the angel's appearance. And even though Jesus told them repeatedly that he was going to rise again, I'm going to rise again on the third day, I'm going to rise again on the third day, they weren't expecting it, and they're in total shock. Now, the translators of your Bible are letting you know that some of the earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts did not include the last 11 verses. Okay, so these last 11 verses, it includes phrases and words that are unlike the first 15 chapters of Mark's gospel, which means it's plausible that someone other than Mark included this at the end of his gospel. So does that mean we can't trust it? No, that's not what we believe at all. This does not mean that verses 9 through 20 did not happen. Because as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, that these events in these last 11 verses are are recorded in other places throughout the other three Gospels. There are cross-references that we're going to see together as a faith family that validate the end of Mark. We're going to see... Together, a significant amount of greater detail that that Mark does not give to us here in verses nine through twenty. But there's also many ancient manuscripts that do have these verses in them, which is why translators have put brackets around the text and they've provided footnotes at the bottom of the page of your Bible. So while Mark may or may not have written verses 9 through 20, the content is certainly true and trustworthy. So there's the introduction to the sermon. Okay, so where do we go from here? Let's look at the disciples' initial disbelief of the resurrection. So that being the case, let's look together in Mark 16, beginning with verse 9. The scripture says this. Early on the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping. Yet when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. So this being the case, we see here in the text that the disciples' initial disbelief of the resurrection... In verse 10 and following, the text says that Mary Magdalene, interesting here, Mark here or whoever wrote this, gives some interesting detail about her life. It's actually a cross reference back to Luke chapter 8 verse 1, where it says that Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. Once again, I was marveling at the Lord this morning as I was thinking about the people whom he chose to validate his resurrection He not only chose women who did not have the equal standing before men. Women were not allowed to give a testimony in court. Women were considered property in that society, in that day and age. And yet those are the very people whom he chose. But he not only chose women to be there at the empty tomb. He chose a woman who used to be demon possessed. That she is the first eyewitness who goes and declares the greatest miracle that's ever happened. Isn't this great? This is what God does. God loves to choose those who are outsiders, those who don't deserve to be there, those who realize how broken they are outside of Jesus. God loves to use people like that. You may be thinking, "Man, there's no way God could ever use me. I am messed up. I'm not that smart and I don't have a lot of money and I've got a messed up past. You're a perfect candidate for grace. God loves to use those who are broken, display his power. God loves to use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Here we see Mary Magdalene, a woman who used to be possessed by seven demons, is now the very means through which she is going to testify to the disciples. She is reporting that Jesus is alive. She had seen him. And yet, verse 11, they did not believe it. Even though Jesus had repeatedly told them over and over again, he's going to rise again on the third day. Even with an eyewitness standing in front of them, declaring what she had heard and seen at the empty tomb, they still don't believe. We see in John chapter 20, where John and Peter make a beeline to the empty tomb. In utter disbelief, they're in a foot race to get to the empty tomb. Now, if you want to have some fun this afternoon, go read John 20. And you see where John makes a footnote and says, I beat Peter to the tomb. Don't you just love, like, a bunch of disciples, like, these world leaders, these world changers are just a bunch of dudes. Just, hey, remember I beat you there. That was, that was fun. And he leaves it in, in all the scripture for all of eternity. For It's there. Sorry, Peter. That race counted. We've already forgotten who won the Olympic medals, by the way. But we have for all of eternity who beat who to the empty tomb. And they get there, and they see it. And they get back, and they're still in disbelief. And the scripture says in John 20 that Jesus... That night, Sunday night, as they're behind locked doors, Jesus appeared to the disciples. And they're in utter shock. The very one who has defeated death is there now with them. And they're overwhelmed with joy. There's one disciple who's not there, Thomas. And Thomas hears from the disciples, we saw him. He's alive. And Thomas says, unless I touch his hands, unless I touch his side, I won't believe. About a week later, Jesus appears again to the disciples and says, Thomas, come and see. Come and touch my hands. Come and touch my hand, my side. Y'all, Jesus is the visible and touchable risen Christ. And this changes everything. Mary was telling the truth. The word of God is true. The gospel is true. And this changes everything. The question is, do you believe this? It's interesting, Jesus told Thomas in that moment, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You and I have not visibly seen the resurrected, visible, touchable Christ yet. And yet Jesus says we are blessed that we believe. So what about you? Do you believe? Do you trust the word of God? This leads us to our impact point. This is my challenge, my entreaty to you. Believe and obey the perfect and unbreakable Word of God. Bank your life upon this word, y'all. Give your life to the study of this book. Don't allow this book to sit on your dashboard for a week. Charles Spurgeon told his congregation some of you have so much dust on the cover of your Bible, you can write damnation with your finger. If you're not walking with Jesus right now, it's because you've gotten away from this book. There are no shortcuts. Believe and obey what it says. Put your face in this book. It was in 1517 that William Tyndale confronted a church leader who was seeking to stop him from translating the Bible into the English language. Tyndale told this guy, and I I love this quote. This is so good. He says, if God spares my life for many years... I will cause a boy that drives a plow to know more scripture than you do. 19 years later, at the age of 42, Tyndale was tied to a stake, strangled, and set on fire. All because he translated the Bible into English all the sacrifices that our brothers and sisters have made so that you and I can have a copy of God's word in our language. And here we sit. We have the word of God in our native tongue, in our language. But do we believe it? Do we trust it? Will we obey it? And look what God has done. Today, there are nurses teachers and janitors and farmers who love the Word of God. William Tyndale is right. The question is is this, what about you? Do you trust the Word of Christ? May today you declare from the bottom of your heart, Lord, I believe. I'm going to trust. I'm going to read. I'm gonna obey.